Hello, I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you are listening to Polit, the podcast for political posits. Hello, and welcome to this, the fourth episode of Polit, the podcast for political posits. Now, today, as ever, we're going to be looking at one of the posts I put up on the blog. If you haven't been to the blog yet, or if you haven't seen it, if you haven't been to the website, there should be a link somewhere to the left or below in the description box for this particular episode and for the podcast as a whole. Um, Yeah, please go to the blog. Please go to the website. There's lots of extra content there. As I always say, I upload things sort of like, you know, every other day. Um, had a piece the other day on uh, Derrida and the Trace, which is quite interesting, and I'm just about to upload one on Roberto Esposito and his notion of immunity, which should be quite interesting considering the COVID pandemic. Also, please subscribe, go to the blog, sign up on the mailing list, that way you'll get exclusive content when it's released, Uh, and also, as I say, subscribe and follow, whether you're on SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, it would mean the world to me. Um, and like and share and the rest. Yeah, so today what we're going to look at is the last episode before Christmas. We're going to look at something a little bit different. So some th- this is a topic which has stayed with me throughout my reading for many years, but it's often something which I find myself having to explain to students and to friends and colleagues, or something which is often asked of me to explain. So today we're going to be looking at A Black Mirror World, Preliminary Thoughts on the Politics of Humanism and Post-Humanism. The blog and the podcast are doing well so far, but there's one question which has sort of continually uh, cropped up when people have asked me questions about it, which is what's the difference between humanism and post-humanism? And so in this short piece, I just want to go through that particular difference. Okay, so let's begin. Much of the modern, sorry, much of modern political theory deals with those humanist questions that concern humanity and the value of human agency. From early modernity to the present day, political questions that place humanity at the centre of consideration have constituted much of the bread and butter of theoretical, theoretical contemplation. So take what we looked at last week on modern political sovereignty uh, and 17th century questions about order, liberty and the social contract uh, and the person of the state, that persona ficta we spoke about, for example. Here, the introspective political discourse was folded back into the nature of humanity and humans as agents living amongst one another. Equally, if we fast forward to the present world, the humanist discourse remains extant when we speak of ethical humanitarian intervention, global health crises, as in the case of uh, COVID, or even UNESCO. And all of this places humanity and human agency at the centre of our political reflections. So it's because of its longevity as a conceptual and paradigmatic influence on philosophical theological and political discourse, that it would be nothing but a misunderstanding to assume that humanism holds a coherency of doctrine across time, space and language. This would be to commit what the noted political theorist and historian of ideas, Quentin Skinner, once uh, labelled as a mythology of doctrine. 
I love the work of, of Quentin Skinner. I don't always agree with certain uh, um, uh, political um, uh, preferences he chooses to explore. And I don't always agree with sort of certain outcomes. But if you're interested in especially Renaissance and 16th century uh, political theory, he's fantastic. So Skinner contended that engaging with such a mythology occurs when an interpreter converts some scattered or incidental remarks by a theorist or theorists into a unified doctrine of any single theme, committing the historical absurdity of synopsis upon either one thinker or a parade of thinkers in order to focus attention on the progression of any given idea, and thereby forging the appearance of a smooth development. So this is basically like saying that you have all lots of different thinkers across space and time and you try and cram them into saying they're all talking about the same thing. And this ignores certain contextual features that Skinner argues actually separates all thinkers. And therefore, we would be committing a misunderstanding, a mythology of doctrine by sort of um, isogetically sort of reading into all these different thinkers' works the same thing or trying to make them appear coherently unified as one body of thought. Such an interpretive blunder would be kind of like finding a thousand different shards of pottery, all varying in shape, colour and size, uh, and then gluing them together to create a vase outline, and then finally claiming that the vase was sort of made by pieces that slip together perfectly like a puzzle, as if they were made for this particular moment. It's just not true. Such an attitude feeds only further misunderstanding. The concept of humanism isn't any different. Humanism has a long and complicated history that evolves with incoherencies and fractures, like all historical ideas, and therefore cannot be pinned down to a single definition. Indeed, it's actually rarely so simple that that can happen. Therefore, in order to avoid any key interpretive blunders, you know, to avoid committing a mythology or presenting a mythology of doctrine, humanism will be associated with the description above, uh, the description that we just discussed, in connection to the centrality of the human and human agency in contemplating matters, be they political or otherwise. If humanism can be broadly located in the centrality of humanity and human agency, the manner in which our lives are constellated in relation to technology engages with what's called post-humanism. So as part of her outstanding work in The Politics of the Human, Anne Phillips pins down a distinctive manner in which post-humanism can be grasped, referencing not any single definition, but characterizing but rather characterizing the concept discursively by the commonality of critical thematic between contemporary post-human works so instead of saying post-human post-humanism is this what phillips does is she looks at all those thinkers who touch on post-humanist questions and asks what is common between those questions here she states and this is a quote there are three key ways in which post-humanism has come to figure in recent literature as a continuing critique of humanism 
that drops the starker anti-humanist overtones as an anticipation of a future populated by enhanced or hybrid humans, and lastly as an unsettling of the boundaries between human, animal, and machine. Phillips's con uh, conceptualization is insightful for a twofold function. Firstly, it mirrors the conceptual discursive breadth taken into account when grasping humanism, avoiding a Skinnerian mythology of doctrine, whilst attempting to provide as inclusive a conceptualization as possible. What Phillips doesn't want to do is provide a, a sort of rough definition or a rough conceptualization of post-humanism through what the dialogues on post-humanism have in common and exclude, in it, and exclude a particular thinker or exclude a particular kind of uh, post-humanism. Um, yeah, so secondly, this is insightful because the last of Philip's thematic characterizations of the post-humanist discourse directly concerns the technological leaps we experience today, namely unsettling the boundaries between human, animal, and machine. Indeed, there has been, a, there has been an important post-human turn in political theory, challenging the anthropocentric assumptions that individuated human agency is the exclusive plane of political action, subjectivity, and community. In this, I mean that in political theory, there has been a post-human turn. A lot of more people, a lot of more thinkers are thinking about post-human questions in order to challenge some of the more anthropocentric uh, assumptions. And by that, I mean uh, that the idea that at the heart of everything is the human. So, for example, if we talk about uh, veganism, for example, uh, just very, very quickly, uh, veganism can be classed as a post-human a formulation of political action, if indeed it is political. Uh, and the reason why is because that recasts the relationship between sort of a, a natural or sort of non-human life as not being a means for human life, if that makes sense. And this disturbs the boundary between what is human and valuing the human above what is non-human or machine. Um, yeah, so our era is characterised, for example, by technological leaps which have led to a new epoch of what Michel Foucault referred to as dispositifs of biopower and the biopolitical wherein sovereignty has begun to crystallise its overt character as an apparatus for rule over biological life to decide how life is to be lived or even which life is to be left to die, unworthy of a valued life. This is what's referred to as necropolitics. If anybody is interested in this, the works I would thoroughly recommend reading are, of course, Michel's, Michel Foucault's discussion of biopolitics, uh, Roberto Esposito's Bios, Biopolitics and Philosophy, and also if you're interested in a post-colonial um, uh, understanding of biopolitics that looks at Foucault with another thinker called uh, uh, Franz Fanon, 
uh, I would recommend reading Achille Mbembe's Necropolitics. Fantastic works. If you're interested in how sovereignty has become to crystallise or manifest itself in discussions around how to manage life and uh, how to uh, how to leave certain individuals to die. A really good example of Necropolitics would be the way in which um, a number of individuals um, allow sort of refugees to be left to die in the Channel or in the Mediterranean. Does this mean that those particular individuals aren't necessarily valued as humans to the same extent as others who would be rescued, who would not be left to die? Um, yes, yeah, so in our world of bionics, genetic modification and nanotechnology, the subject has fallen once again into question merging as Phillips contends with technology in order to fully interpret itself as human. Or perhaps this claim is too early to stipulate. Nonetheless, we have already seen this in the sphere of formal politics, where some argue that even access to electricity should be folded into the discourse of potential human rights, along with other political and social posits we consider to be essential to human life. What I'm trying to say here really is that when we start to discuss the human as being innately connected to forms of technology, such as electricity, um, or I even had once had a conversation with someone who argued that um, phone signal should be a human right. I mean, I don't think that water and food are yet human rights. <laughs> um, so maybe they should be discussed before electricity. Uh, but my critique isn't of human rights itself. My critique or, you know, my question is, is that too far to cl is that to go too far to claim that what it is to be innately human is somehow connected to the use and abuse or abuse of technology? How, yeah. So has what it is to be fundamentally human adapted with the use of technology? Is it sort of a, a base level now? One can't one is not considered to be human. Um, or one is being denied one's humanity if one doesn't have access to electricity. That's a fundamental question that I think we're, that that is a fundamental post-human question. Um, the question in this black mirror world of technological post-humanism is not whether or not a certain sense of humanity will be undermined through its singularization with technology, but as the the philosopher Slavoj Žižek reminds us. Quote, with the digitization of our lives and the prospect of a direct link between our brain and digital machinery, we are entering a new post-human era in which our basic self-understanding as free and responsible agents will be affected. In this way, post-humanism is no longer an eccentric theoretical proposal, but a manner concerning our daily lives. End quote. In this world, we would be able to understand ourselves as independent to our technological achievements ontologically. Would we be able to even understand our, ourselves as independent to our technological achievements ontologically? Would we be able to uh, interpret ourselves as independent entities to technology? If we can't, then surely that makes us cyborgs in one way or another that an extension of our own subjects is the sort of technology, is sort of the material of the world itself, as opposed to sort of part of our organic person. Would we even be able, would we even be able to see when and if 
our technological advances are fundamentally adapting the humanist subject to a post-human one, where the organic creativity of non-technological or at least non-digital life is incomprehensible. Will we be will will we, <laughs> will we be able to even fathom a subject that is non-technological? Um, will that even be imaginable? Perhaps this is what a post-human politics should make its concern: the manner in which we are now having to navigate a world in which our creations, norms, and epistemological spheres do not undermine how we interpret ourselves, i.e. perhaps a post-human politics should make its concern how not to lose what makes us human without jettisoning the benefits of our hyper-technological condition. The reason why I've called this a black mirror world is because I think that the program on Netflix, if you haven't watched it, do watch it, uh, Black Mirror, discusses in a number of individual stories the way in which technology sort of manifests itself in relation to the human um, and sort of the problems that that creates. I do have an, a little bit of an issue with Black Mirror. Um, I mean, I like Black Mirror, don't get me wrong. It's fantastic. The only issue I have with it on a philosophical level is whether or not one would be able, in that world, because it's always set in sort of a not-too-distant future, would one be able, as I say, to rec recognise oneself as human in the way we do now, in that world? Because that's the assumption that Black Mirror makes, is that it is discussing a world yet to be from our norms. That's like having... That's literally like having a discussion about technology a hundred years ago, about today. Or even better, that's a good example, um, in, in Back to the Future 2, when they go to, um, was it, I think it's 2015 or 2016, um, and that's their sort of understanding of what the future is. That tells us more about them than us, how they understood it. So the question is, if technology does fundamentally change how we understand the human... Can we have a good dialogue, a good discussion about the politics of that within our humanist time, or at least the sort of on the verge between humanism and post-humanism? Is that a, an interesting discussion or is that flawed? Because ultimately all the characters, because it's written today and because it's, you know, from our perspective today about tomorrow do all the characters who fundamentally regain something human in every single story, there's a sort of a connection between them that they all realise their humanitas. They all always realise their humanity, um, as opposed in sort of the face of post-humanity. And so, I think the question is: Would that even be conceivable in that period? Has uh, will post-humanism, our relationship to technology, make such things even unimaginable? So just before I finish, one thing I'd like to go through is I'd like to go through a few different kinds of post-humanism that we experience today. So we have transhumanism, we have metahumanism, uh, we have uh, anti-humanism, uh, a new materialism, um, and then you have discussions about, by for example, by Donna Haraway, uh, about sort of cyborgs and symbionts. And I think that this is what's so fascinating is that it might sound really sort of sci-fi related, but the norms of sort of science fiction have allowed us to broaden our imagination as to what is technologically possible. 
um, really good uh, physicist for this is Misha Kaku, who argues um, uh, or who you know who writes books about how the physics of science fiction is or is not correct, or what we can learn from the physics of imaginative science fiction. And I think that's just the point: is that now our science fictions are feeding back into how we understand knowledge. Does that fundamentally change what we understand to be human? And does technology change what it is to be human? And I think that's the difference between humanism and post-humanism. To sum, to sum up, humanism puts the human at the centre, puts anthropological concerns at the centre, and says that human agency, human action, is at the heart of our political concerns. And post-humanism either rallies against that, saying that that is too exclusive, or it questions the very fabric of what human agency has created in terms of technology and whether or not that has retroactively affected what it is to be human. So thank you very much for listening. Um, please, as I say, go onto the blog. There are references, citations and more content. Also, please follow and subscribe, whether you're on SoundCloud, uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And also, please, when you're on the blog, please uh, sign up to the mailing list as well. Um, that means that you'll be able to get content as it's published. Um, and have a fantastic Christmas, happy holidays, and I will see you in a week. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>